Well, about 40, 45 miles north of Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, there is a city called Uppsala. You may have heard of it, you may not. It's the fourth largest city in Sweden. But it has a long, long, centuries-old history. Uppsala was known throughout the Scandinavian region for centuries as the home of and the place for worshiping the pagan Nordic gods, in particular Thor and Odin and Freya. Early medieval sources describe a very, very large temple with three statues inside, one for Odin, one for Thor, one for Freya. A large evergreen tree by a spring outside the temple and a vast grove of trees in which the people would worship and make their sacrifices. We're told that there was a priest assigned to each god and sacrifices were made to these gods during times of famine or plague when war was approaching, for marriage, for birth, for all sorts of purposes. The intent being to seek the gods' favor, but also to seek relief from trouble. One writer says that every nine years, there was a huge festival that was held, and people came Different sources would would say from different places, but at least from Sweden, if not from all of Scandinavia, every nine years would come. And during this festival, nine males of every creature that they had or could find, including men, were sacrificed, one over each of the nine days of the festival. These sacrifices and the blood that drained from their bodies as they were hung in the grove of trees outside the temple were meant to placate the anger of the gods, keep their anger at bay. The very trees that the bodies hung from as their blood drained into the ground were themselves considered sacred, if not divine. When Christianity first came to the region about a thousand years ago, to avoid participating in this gruesome festival, Christians had to pay a fine, a fee, to be exempt from participating in this bloody, bloody festival. It's one of the more gruesome descriptions of sacrifice that is out there in in the world that that we know of. Just one example of the kinds of pagan rites and sacrifices that exist around the world in just about every culture in one form or another. Aztecs were known for their sacrifices, pulling a beating heart out of a living person, sometimes by the thousands, even in one day. The ancient Phoenicians were accused by their contemporaries, and there's some archaeological evidence that this is true, that they undertook the ritual sacrifice of children and babies. And so the bones of children have been found in places where uh, sacrifices were known to have been made. The Greeks and Romans practiced various forms of sacrifice, both animal and human. And around the world, in virtually every culture, there's this practice of pagan gods being placated, being satisfied, their, their anger being appeased or assuaged by blood, 
by sacrifice. The gods are angry. Let's kill somebody. The gods are angry. Let's throw someone into a volcano. The gods are angry. We have to do something. Now, I think this reflects a common desire or a common knowledge of some kind that we all have that's part of our, our DNA, if you will, our very human nature, to have the favor of the gods or whoever it is that's out there bigger and stronger and wiser and more powerful than us, to appease their anger when we offend them. Unfortunately, these, these pagan practices, these pagan rituals are, are a poor, a very, very poor <laughs> attempt to do what God's word instructs us to do properly. We're not here to appease pagan gods that men have invented in their brains. But there is the God of gods. There is the true God. There is Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord God, the creator of all things. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. There is a true God, the true God. And we have offended him in our rebellious sin. And we have earned his wrath and his just punishment for that sin, which is death. But here's the glory and the wonder of Christianity and the religion that we preach and teach and are ambassadors of. Unlike the pagan gods, this same God, our God, provided the means to deal with that sin and to restore our relationship with him, to bring about reconciliation, to be acceptable before him. But not just to be acceptable, but to actually enjoy his love and his favor. Now and for all time. And that way, that means, as we know, is through very, uh, God's very own Son, namely Jesus. Through whom, as the author says in these opening chapters, has spoken God has spoken in these last days. The Son who came and identified with us in our humanity, like us in every respect, so that he, through his own self-sacrifice, offering himself on behalf of his brothers, he calls us, might be the champion, as we talked about last week, and the high priest of our salvation, winning a place for us in God's family and in the world to come. So as the author says, who can ignore such a great salvation? Who can ignore this? Well, we can't and we won't. I want to look this morning at what, what Jesus did, how he did it, and what that means for us. What did Jesus do? How did he do it? And what does it mean for us? Looking first at what Jesus did says in verse 17 that he was made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is what Jesus did for us. He came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation is not a common word. 
It's not one we use in everyday English, so we need to think about and discuss what it means. There's a close word that you might hear and remember hearing from time to time. A close word is propitious. People who predict things, people who predict elections, people who predict sporting events, fortune tellers who like to predict the future, will say in the, in the course of their conversation that the signs are propitious for this, that, or the other thing. The signs are propitious. What do they mean by that? It means the signs are favorable. There's a favorable outcome on the horizon. Things look good. Things look positive. That idea of favor is contained in the word propitiation. Part of the meaning is to take that which is unfavorable and make it favorable. Restore it to good favor. How does Jesus do this? Well, he makes propitiation for the sins of the people. The people here is a common way of referring to the people of God, both in the Old Testament and the New. So in other words, Jesus is doing this for his people, for God's people, for a definite particular group of people. So he's restoring to favor those who are out of favor. Now there's another idea wrapped up in the word propitiation, and that's the idea of expiation, another uncommon word. But to expiate means to take away or remove or wipe away. And what Jesus does in expiating is he removes our sins. He removes them from us. He wipes them away. And he does this when he dies. Jesus died, we read back in 14 and 15, to deliver God's people from death and from the fear of death. He did this as we read in the New Testament reading by taking our sins on himself and offering himself and his death as a sacrifice for our sins. So when he takes those sins from us, he removes them from us. They're expiated. They're removed. They're wiped away. And in removing them from us, he pays the penalty for them by himself and by his death. Expiation is not enough. We have to be restored to favor as well. And that's what Jesus does. He covers us in his own blood. There's an idea in the Old Testament repeated. You see it in the commands about murder and and some other commands in Scripture, uh, not to drink blood, not to eat blood, because Scripture says, in blood is life. Blood is seen as as the essence of, of life and what is a living thing. Sin incurs the penalty of death, but sin covered by blood restores to life. And this is a lot of what's going on in all those rituals and and ceremonies of the Old Testament. Cover it with blood and restore it to life. Take the sins and send them out into the wilderness on the head of a goat. Cover the people with blood and restore them to life. Remove the penalty of death, at least for one year. at least for one year. And what Jesus' human blood does for us, shed for us, covers us in life. Covers us in a life of perfect obedience to God and to His commands. His very own blood represents that perfect obedience to God's laws. So now we're counted among the living, and in particular the righteous living 
couldn't be just any animal that was brought to the temple to be sacrificed. It had to be a perfect one, without blemish. Now the perfect man, without blemish, offers us his perfect blood, without blemish. And so we are seen as obedient, law-keeping, living beings. Looking upon us this way, God looks upon us now with favor. Our sins are expiated. Our sins are removed. We are now restored to favor with God, acceptable in his sight, and he loves us as his people. That's what Jesus did. Jesus made propitiation for our sins removed them from us, paid the penalty. He atoned for the sins in paying the penalty. That also is encompassed in the idea of propitiation. Covered us with his perfect obedience and restored us to a right, favorable, acceptable relationship with God. What all these pagan rites and rituals do so poorly, Jesus does perfectly and successfully. Why does he do it? We've kind of touched on that already. Um, how Jesus gives uh, or makes, prep, uh, makes propitiation for our sins. But the passage and the context gives us a little bit more in terms of the details. So starting in verse 17 there, the very first little phrase. He does this by becoming like his brothers in every respect. Later in the letter, that, that phrase is qualified like us in every respect, yet without sin. Here the author is just emphasizing the idea that he's like us in every respect. He is a man. He didn't appear as a man. He doesn't look like a man. He doesn't become a man for a time and then not become a man. He is a man. And as the theme of the latter part of this chapter is, that we talked about last week, as such he identifies with us. He calls us his brothers. We are his friends. Jesus identifies with humanity by becoming a human. Being able to call us his brothers. This is necessary because if a sacrifice is going to be made for human sin, it needs to be a human sacrifice. The author expands on this much more in the letter and we'll see that as we go through it. But he he makes propitiation because as a man he can make propitiation. And nothing else can. But also, becoming like us in every respect, he now can act as a high priest. He now can do something that Aaron and his descendants could not do. He can go before God and make the sacrifice that's necessary to once and for all deal with the sins of the people of God. Again, you see in the Old Testament reading all the elaborate preparations that have to be made, all the things that are necessary for the high priest to be able to go in and make atonement for the sins of the people, to be clean, to be bathed, to be clothed in clean, white, pure garments. That cleanliness, when you read it, it's not about hygiene. It's about moral and ethical purity before God, a lack of sin. But that's just a covering for a sinful man. The Son, namely Jesus, became a human, became like us in every respect, yet without sin. And because he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law, he is pure. 
He is clean. And so he is able to enter into the very presence of God on our behalf and offer his own blood as a covering for our sins and to atone for those sins. And he doesn't go into a building, but has risen from death and enters into God's very own presence and remains there as a mediator for us. And it says he did this in the service of God. He became a a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, like no other priest, like no other priest before him. He serves God for all of God's people. And then we have that description of, or the, the adjectives that describe what kind of a high priest he is. He's a merciful high priest and a faithful high priest. So how does the son serve as God's high priest? How does he make propitiation for the sins of the people? He does it mercifully, and he does it faithfully. That faithfulness is important. He obeyed the Father, humbling himself and becoming a man, and was obedient even to death on the cross. He kept the law. He was tempted, as we see in verse 18, and yet without sin. He's faithful. He did what he was called to do. He came and fulfilled the purpose for which he was called. He's faithful. He's dependable. But he's also merciful. He did these things out of love and mercy for the people of God. Some translations, instead of merciful, put the word compassion there. He is a compassionate high priest. He actually cares for us. He sees our weaknesses. He sees our sin. He knows the punishment we deserve. Yet in mercy, in compassion, in love for us, he offers himself in our place. Paying for our sins so that we don't have to. So now we're beyond mere ritual. We're beyond mere pagan appeasement of angry gods. This is an act of love. It's an act of compassion. God did this. He sent his son to do this because he loves his people. That means you. God did this for you. He had compassion on you. God cares for you. God loves you. That's deep. That's profound. What does it mean for us? That God loves us, well, that means everything. Some thoughts from this passage, and again from the context of this section of of Scripture. The first thing it means is you don't have to strive and work and worry and fear that God is angry with you, that you have to do something to appease his wrath and earn his favor back. We don't fall in and out of favor with God. That's a pagan idea. And any religion that teaches that is a false religion. We do not fall in and out of favor with God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is powerful. That is radical. The frustration and aggravation of pagan religion is that they have to keep doing things to stay in the favor of their God, whatever form that might take. I have to sacrifice something that I own, a bull, a goat, a horse, a slave, or an enemy captured in battle. 
and I have to do this so that my life will go well. I want to have a good harvest. I want to win a battle against an enemy. I want to find a good spouse. I want to have healthy children. <clears throat> but I also do this because I'm afraid. I've angered the gods in some way. I know I have. I've got to do things to make things right. Make the sacrifices, follow the rituals so that the gods will be appeased and now look upon me with favor and give me success in my life. It's all work, 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 work. A burden. Instead, we have the good news announced by the Son. The word from the Father that is spoken to us in these last days is this. I did it. It is finished. I became sin. I became a curse so that you might become the righteousness of God and be free and have peace. It's time to put away pagan practices and repent and believe in Jesus and trusting in the work that he has done for us. Time to tear down the pagan temples and build churches to worship the triune God. That city in Sweden, Uppsala, you know what happened there? It became the center of Christianity in that nation. That is the headquarters of Christianity in Sweden. They can't even find the pagan temple anymore. Archaeologists have hints, but they can't even find it. Put away the pagan practices and embrace Christ. He did it for us. You don't have to work and strive anymore. What else does the work of Jesus for us mean? It means we have a helper according to the text. (coughs) We have a helper like no other helper. Because he became like us in every respect, he's able to help us. Not merely by becoming human like us, but by living like us. He experienced sickness. He experienced the pain of broken relationships, physical pain, sorrow, all the anxieties and fears and worries of this life, including being tempted by sin. And it says in verse 18, he suffered when he was tempted. It's not like he stoically faced temptation when it arose and said, ah, get away from me. He suffered when he was tempted. Think about that. We are tempted, and that's, that, that, there's a suffering that's involved with that. The struggle with giving in to temptation or, or resisting it and obeying. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. And because of that, says the writer, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He's walked in our shoes. He's been there. He's done that. Whatever you have experienced or maybe are experiencing as you sit here today, Jesus knows what you're going through. And he's willing and able to help. He's, remember, he's faithful. He's merciful. That faithful, merciful service is seen in the cross. But it's also present for us in our day-to-day lives to help us and to guide us and to comfort us. It's present in, in in the person and work of the Holy Spirit who's poured out upon the church. Like he was not poured out before Pentecost. Sent by 
by Jesus himself to be our helper and our comforter. And I think one of the more powerful ways he does that is by putting us in the midst of a body of believers who have experienced what we've experienced, who've gone through it, and can give us help and comfort and come, come alongside us and show us compassion and wisdom and, and guidance. I think that's one of the more tangible expressions of the love of God is the love that we demonstrate to one another in and through the power of the Holy Spirit. What this means then is these things are true only for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. He made a propitiation for the people of God. That's us. He also calls us to be living sacrifices. Look at Romans 12.1. So part of this coming to Jesus in repentance and faith means a dying to ourselves. We've read that as well. It's contained in, in the ideas that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians 5 that we read earlier. Dying to our sinful rebellion, dying to our arrogant, futile attempts to win God's favor, admitting our sin, admitting that we need a Savior. We die with Christ. Pagan rituals can't do that. Someone else has to be sacrificed, not me. Something else has to be sacrificed, not me. It might be valuable to me, but it's not me. That goat is not me. That slave is not me. Jesus identifies with us, and he died for us. When we repent of our sin and seek God's forgiveness and begin trusting in the work of Christ for us, we die with him, says Scripture, and then we are raised to life with him as well, to live forever in this place that is so tantalizingly described for us by this author earlier in chapter 2 as the world to come. Remember, the heart of these opening chapters is a call to pay very close attention to what we have heard and not neglect such a great salvation as we have in Christ Jesus, our Savior. So again, laying the foundation for what's going to come next in this glorious letter. Hear this again. Pay attention. Pay close attention. And as we move into chapter 3, what it says in the opening verse there, consider Jesus the high priest of our salvation. And all that that means for us and for how we live in this world until that world to come arrives. Let me pray for us. Our glorious, gracious, merciful, loving God and Father in heaven, we do thank you for Christ and his work on our behalf, that he did become like us, that he suffered for us, that he died for us that he can relate to us, that he understands our weakness, and that he helps us in that weakness. May we not just know that in our heads, but experience it in our lives. And may we be agents of that love and compassion and help to those around us. As we read in Corinthians, may we be ambassadors for Christ, not just with words of, of the gospel,
um, but also as we come alongside and bring comfort and help and, and peace and joy to those around us, especially in the body of Christ. Bless us in all that we do. Guide us and lead us by your word and by your spirit. Help us to serve you in all that we do. Be salt and light to those around us. We can only do it in the power that you give us. We pray for it in abundance. We ask for it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.